More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Welcome everyone, Julie here. I am very excited about today's guest. Uh, today, I am welcoming the Honorable Stockwell Day. And I, you know, I was thinking about how to introduce you and you have such a litany of political accomplishments in Canada that to mention some of them and not the others seems to do the others disservice. But just to refresh people's memory, you were the leader of the of the Canadian Alliance from about 2000, 2001, which does not feel that long ago. That's 20 years ago. I, I can hardly believe that. I can uh, hardly believe that. <laughs> it just seemed like, yeah, it was fresh in my mind. Um, and under Prime Minister Stephen Harper, among other portfolios, you were the Minister of Public Safety. So I wanna make sure to ask you a little bit about that later on. So grateful sure. for your time today, but more than that, um, for your contribution to what I think we really need right now, which is unconstrained public discussion, conversations about ideas that we take to be important, about what's worrying us as Canadians and about what we're gonna do about it together and not being afraid that we might say the wrong thing, you know, on pain of dissolving our relationship. So that's, that's a public space that's not entirely safe uh, to tread into these days. So I very much appreciate your, your being with me today. Thank you. I really appreciate being here with you. You are, you have become a legend in a short period of time, I can tell you. So uh, it's always fun to hang out with legends. Let's talk a little bit about where we're at. You know, a lot of the things that have happened over the last couple of years, there's been a like almost a nomenclature, a language to it that I didn't think we would see in Canada. You know, we have these words that you, you can't turn on the news without seeing things like mandate, vaccine passports, lockdowns, restrictions. Um, and these were not things that were part of our vocabulary prior to 2020 or 2019. And then not to mention all the other things that people are worried about economically now. We have, you know, we've had a housing crisis for years. Now we're worried about inflation. So many people were still worried about terrorism. And now there's a hysteria over the climate crisis and whatever new virus is on the horizon. I mean, I think people are really in a, gripped by a kind of anxiety. And that makes it not surprising that we have things like unprecedented levels of obesity and drug addiction and alcohol addiction and stress, which is a major risk factor for every disease, right? I mean, it seems like we're, we're not doing very well. Do you ever wonder, you know, how did we get to this place in Canada? Well, those are great observations, uh, Julie, if I can call you that, or Dr. Panessi, yes, whatever. Julie, of words. course, of course, Julie. Um, yeah, you, you've been clearly, uh, not just now, but over the last period of time, you've been a clear articulator of this problem. Um, you know, you said something particularly uh, poignant in one of your interviews when you talked about the crisis, you talked about the crisis in healthcare because of what exactly you described, this fear of speaking up. And then you said the crisis in media, which is true, the crisis in academe. And then what really sort of zinged through to my heart was uh, the crisis in, in the public square, the, the crisis in between people willing to just talk about things, including their differences. That to me is, is the saddest, but probably the most frightening also, where people are simply afraid to be open and talk about what they think about things for fear of being, you know, you pick the word canceled or whatever. And um, in response to your question, and you've been a, a chronicler of this, 
it's taken uh, it's taken a fair bit of time, uh, probably thirty or forty years to get to this place. Mm. Uh, but that's just an instant of time in the in the in terms of our history of public discourse. It was always acceptable. As a matter of fact, expected that people in any of those arenas that you mentioned would speak up, and there'd be a debate, especially on healthcare, which is based supposed to be based on science and the foundation of science and the science. Um, the scientific method is debate. It's, you know, here's what I think, what do you think? Here's what my tests show, what do your tests show? Um, so the erosion of that ability to be truly free, uh, it's taken some time to build up, but it's come upon us suddenly, and uh, it's put us in a very precarious position as far as our liberties go. And the death of curiosity, don't you think? You know, you mentioned people uh, just getting together with their loved ones or having conversations or, I mean, how can you have a conversation with your friends, say over coffee in the morning at the local coffee shop, if you either don't have curiosity about who they are, what they think about things, what their views are, why they differ from you, what they think about you and your view. If you don't have that curiosity, how is conversation possible? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a good question. I think we're we're seeing the results of that, and again, the heartbreaking uh, consequences of this type of approach. Being afraid to speak up, it really it, it it's gone right into families. Um, COVID has been COVID. It wasn't COVID that brought this on, but COVID has highlighted it. Um, I, I think there's hardly a family that has not been split, where you can't even discuss your different point of views. Even in the light of science, um, you know, you had, um, was it Dr. Bonnie Millard, correct me if, if I've got mm -hmm. that correct, you know, an, another, an amazing woman, 30 years in the, uh, in the business of uh, immunology and virology, recognized around the world and at one of our Canadian universities. And just the fact that she brought a different view to the table related to this whole uh, process, the mandates, et cetera, she was, she was done. Her career was over. We've lost, at least in the public stream, such a valuable resource. And I don't, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but um, look at your situation. You know, um, a doctor of ethics and in bioethics and a diploma from the Kennedy School on this whole topic. And you brought up a different point of view. And here's what alarms me. Um, you were not not just fired by, again, a male-dominated uh, hierarchy, but where, where are the women in journalism who should have been there for you? I mean, men should have been there too. You're right. I wasn't just fired. I was strung up in the public square as, as an example. You were. You better not do this or else. And You uh, were. You know, you're, you're right. There were, there were no journalists who, to act as a check and balance on, I mean, goodness, they should be doing that with government and they haven't, but also right. with, with academia and to say, well, what, what's coming, what's going on in this, these little ivory right. wall ecosystems where our ideas are supposed to be free and protected? What's happening there anyway? You know, never mind me. I mean, um, what's being taught to the students who are paying tens of thousands of dollars right. per year and orienting their lives around this idea that you can't live a good life without an undergraduate degree, what are they learning anyway? And what is no. the output of our academic work in journals and studies? And what value does that have, right? Exactly right. Everything gets, everything gets, uh, everything but the uh, prevailing narrative gets 
diminished. I mean, going back to these to, to the journalists, I know most of the leading uh, journalists in Canada, you know, interviewed with them. You get to know people when you're on the hill for years. Mm -hmm. And I've always had such respect for them. They, they're articulate, they're, you think they're well-informed. But recently, when it comes to giving coverage to somebody who has a different approach, they go silent. Now, I'd like to it'd be great. I don't, I'm not telling you how to run your show, but you get you know, Mar uh, Rosemary Barton on your show or Lisa Laflamme, you know, some of these names and say, I, I would like to know, have they been ordered by the, again, male-dominated hierarchy in journalism to just plain shut up? when you see the heartbreaking situation of someone like Dr. Julie Panessi getting thrown under the bus, they, they, they've, they have, they run for cover. And I'd like to know from their point of view, why is that? I understand the fear of being canceled, especially in business. You know, when I was so-called canceled, be over two years ago now, um, just with the loss of multi-year contracts that I had, that, that's, you know, uh, the results of that over a number of years is in the millions of dollars. So I get that. I get that people are afraid to speak up, mm -hmm. but as uh, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, you begin to die the day you stop speaking up. And we have a dying culture of openness because, and in this case, we're talking about journalists, journalists now are afraid to push back with their editors. Editors are afraid to push back with their publishers. Um, and it's put us in a very precarious state as really as a civilization. Well, I sure am glad we were chatting today. We could just stop right there. And that's given us so, so, so many nuggets to think about. Can you take us back? You mentioned 30 or 40 years ago, the seeds of where we're at now got planted, got nurtured. That takes us back to the early 80s, maybe the late 70s. What did you see, or in hindsight, see that was happening in Canada that sort of trickled in, infiltrated into, I guess, politics, academia, journalism, the culture? Mm. Uh, that's a great question. Where did that come from? Let, let me just toss out my um, thesis on that, and you can agree or disagree. <laughs> I guess we're allowed to disagree on stuff on your show. I think um, so. There's, let me check in the back of the book and the manual. <laughs> I'll let you know. You know, you said 30, 40 years ago. So when I got first elected in provincial legislature uh, in, in Alberta, and I served variously as I was uh, Minister of Labor and the Minister of Social Services and then Finance Minister. Mm -hmm. Debate was robust in those days, mm -hmm. even with you know the NDP in the legislature, with the Liberals, um, and, and and fiery also. But there there was certain nomenclatures that never were introduced into the um, vocabulary, the lexicon of the debate. For instance, if somebody had a different point of view that I did. Um, in debate, we never used the word, we never accused the person of being hateful, for instance, right. you're a hater. We never said denier. We never said racist. Are there racists out there? Of course there are. And there's people who need to be deemed as such when it arises. But we never use terms like that. We say, I disagree. We say you're out to lunch. Um, and not just uh, formally, but I can remember even sitting around the legislature. I can remember a, a Muslim friend of mine and we would talk about our differences and what we believe spiritually. Now, those are pretty profound differences. Mm -hmm. And yet we, we would talk about them. He would say, well, I, you know, I don't think Jesus Christ is uh, Lord, let's say, as the Christian denomination thinks. And I'd say, well, I have some thoughts about uh, Muhammad. And we, we could have those discussions and not in secret, but openly. But more and more, 
we got into the way you silence people is call them a hater, call them a denier, um, use some of these terms, and then it becomes reputational. And then people start to fear that they're going to lose either status or maybe a sponsor or uh, some, oh. some repu reputation. That, that is what began to change. That's so interesting because, I mean, like what you're talking about is an ad hominem attack, right? You're attacking a person's character, right. fiber of their being, what it is that makes them it's very personal. When you, I think when you attack someone's words, what they say, what claims they make, there's a certain, it's not that we're not connected to our, our utterances or our expressions, but there's a bit of a distance there. But when you bypass those views and you go right to the heart of the person, we saw this with our prime minister in the house with Melissa Lastman in, in particular, right. and then of course, you know, demonizing the, the truckers and anyone who supported them, that there's no engagement. I mean, he's famous for this. There's no engagement with the things said just bypassing it. it it's, it's masterful in terms of, if we think of rhetoric as just a matter of persuading people, but there's no substance to it. Because if you just, right, go back and forth and attack a person's character, as I said, it's very personal, but also I think as, as you're pointing out, there's no political debate anymore. There's no public, because right. you're not talking about anything. You're not talking about ideas, you're talking about people and what's important politically and, and ideologically and culturally are the ideas that, that we have, right? So you think that that, and, and so even back, so when would that be in the nineties? Well, if there were still, I would call it, um, uh, Julie, I would call it relative freedom. Um, mm -hmm. e yeah, go, getting into the eighties, moving into the nineties. There were a number of things that came, a number of types of debates that started to emerge that then pushed people to these uh, to these ugly accusations. I can remember quite clearly the debate on the definition of marriage, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the early days of that debate, it was openly debated, it was discussed, there were strong feelings on both points of view. Uh, most prime ministers up until that point of time uh, agreed that uh, civil unions should have full rights, absolutely, of, of any other type of union. But the debate hung around the definition of marriage itself. So you, you, you were, you know, an observer of those debates. So in the early days of the debate, we could just we could discuss that and recognize that everybody had the liberty to make their own choices in terms in terms of who they wanted to be with for their lives. Uh, but there began to start in there um, an accusation of hatred. You know, you hate somebody. You're a hater, and uh, I can think. And, but it usually was leveled to people who were either center or to the right. For instance, uh, when Barack Obama first ran for president, he was very clearly, he was very strong, uh, maintain the definition of marriage, maintain the definition, allow civil unions. Uh, Jean Chrétien, very strong on that, maintain that. Mm -hmm. uh, but suddenly there began to emerge that if you had a, a different view on this, um, you, were, you were deemed a hater. And it, that graduated, not just in that debate, there were, there was a couple of others that, that embraced this thought, but it got to the place that you should not actually be allowed even to speak in public. If you remember the vote, um, the final vote in the House of Commons on that particular question, it was nearly split. It was almost 50-50. But the side, it, it went to the side that said, no, let's change the definition. And, you know, everybody voted and we moved on. We said, okay, well, that's, that's democracy. Bring forward your point of view, have a good debate. All right, it goes the other way. 
But now and, and then and, and now things like that continue to get dredged up. They bring back things people have said, you know, many, many years ago and mm. said, well, it just proves you're a hater. So hater, racist, misogynist. Uh, I, I was so disappointed so many times you bring up um, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and Melissa Lansman. You know, a little tough to call her a mis misogynist, by the way. And yet, and, or a Nazi, and yet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. That's a little tough one, right? Yeah. Um, but I think of, uh, you know, that's why I sort of smile when uh, I don't want to get a partisan thing here, but the, the federal uh, leadership race that's going on now, I'm, I'm supporting Leslie Lewis. And so I, I'm, I'm waiting to see, I'd love to see a debate with the prime minister and Leslie Lewis. I'd love to see him try to call her misogynist. <laughs> or how about racist? How about anti-immigration? You know, she came here. Um, so those are, those will be fun moments to watch. But what's not fun is the fact that people have had lives, they've had uh, destroyed, they've had their reputations destroyed, careers destroyed like yours, because it's gone to this new level. You don't want to entertain debate. Call somebody a denier instead. Call them Shut racist them instead. And then, you know what? With the Shut media- Shut them up and then walk out of the house, right? Isn't that a good tactic? Exactly right, yeah. So all of that has contributed to the fear of what you're going to lose. You know, and, and you, you mentioned, uh, you know, Nazi and things like that. Even if you bring up terms like that today or what's, what went on in the 30s and 40s, even then you're, you're saying, oh, you're trying to diminish the terrible events of that time. And no, not at all. But there are certain precursors that can be seen to lead to the type of society where freedoms are taken away. So now I, I'll, instead, I'll, just, I'll talk about Napoleon, you know, he, his famous quote, he said, I will lose my empire if I cease to become fearsome. Mm -hmm. So he knew you've got to strike fear, whether you use it with a, uh, a, a COVID narrative or whether you use it with fear of being accused of something. Um, that is basically the instrument. Strike fear and then protect your empire. And sad to say that Prime Minister Trudeau and a number of other leaders around the world are using that tactic. Causing fear, I mean, it's, it's one thing for fear to exist in a population because of a, of a, of a reasonable uh, concern over a threat, but causing fear in a population out of proportion with the threat or where right. there is no threat, that is a kind of hatred, isn't it? I mean, that's a way to express hatred for people. You mentioned uh, sort of hatred coming from the left. I think that's very interesting, this idea that, I mean, hatred is, if we call it an emotion of kind of a moral emotion, um, that that's that, that falls on partisan lines, that it was out of the left camp that hating right. came, launched to those on the right and the right have kind of assumed and maybe maybe quite reasonably so. I mean, what else are you going to do? But have kind of taken a defensive position because when you're when you're constantly hated, I mean, that's a lot to deal with. It's a barrage, right? An attack. Um, how, how do you think that narrative or that sort of what can we call it? You know, the, those those sort of dispositions relative to what? How do we change that? How do we take hatred out of the political sphere and get it focused on the ideas again, the issues? not make it personal. Yeah, well, I think part of the answer to that, uh, Julie, is we've got to go after and hold to account the activists in all of these movements, be they to the left or be to the right. Um, most of the people, let's say in, in a particular group, most, would tend to be more reasonable than their activist leaders. 
And so we've really got to call out the leaders when they're using that type of language. I, I can remember, um, well, not, not to prolong this issue, but on the marriage debate, I, I remember when I was running for leadership uh, federally, and uh, there was a great story in the, it was either Trump Star or Globe Mail, I believe it, I, I keep it, I've got it recorded, where the media went to um, one of the leaders of, uh, I can't, uh, it was one of the gay and lesbian um, associations and said, wow, Stockwell Day's running for federal leadership. You know, you must be worried about a hater like that. And this guy said, well, no, this is not about hate. As a matter of fact, he, Stockwell Day used to meet with us regularly to try and, you know, understand our position and make sure he had, uh, you know, a full understanding. And so we disagree, but he does, he's not a hater. Uh, that got one quick mention, and then that was never brought up again. So it's because uh, there's a person who I, I would say is uh, strong in that in, in their movement and in their community, but not an activist who's trying to scare off debate mm -hmm. by using those terms. So you have to go after the activists. I can tell you, Julian, I made this observation early on in my political career. Uh, so people are going to think I'm being stereotypical here, but I'm just giving an observation. Traveling around, not just in, in a province, but around the country, holding political meetings, open public meetings. Mm -hmm. The most aggressive, the most attack-minded people, the most disruptive was always the people on the left. Not that there aren't some people on the right who aren't like that. There are. But the predominance, the, the worst um, demonstrations, the worst attacks, physical attacks, uh, either on me or, or on my team. I can think of times when uh, my wife and I literally attacked by a mob. Um, we're reading lately about politicians, and this is very serious business, who are, have death threats. Um, you know what? We, I, I regularly, and, and people to the right of the spectrum, regularly death threats, bombing threats, uh, people arrested because of credible threats. It almost always came from the left, not that the right is immune to it. And so you've got to go, you got to zero in who's saying this, which activists are saying it, and hold them to account for their bigoted attacks. Let's, let's talk about the political spectrum for a little bit, because I'm quite frequently confused by it, to be honest. We have this language of left and right, center, left, right, and center. We have this language of conservative versus liberal. Do those map on to each other, do you think? I mean, when we talk about someone being on the right, do we necessarily mean that they are conservative? Is it possible to be a right-leaning liberal? <laughs> it actually is. It actually is. And on, on Let's some get point, this sorted out once and for all. <laughs> so you and I may have some of the same discomfort with the use of labels. However, labels are, at least on the surface, sometimes helpful, right? So if I say I'm from the right politically, basically what I'm saying is I believe in the importance of individuals, I believe in the importance of families, I believe in the importance of small business. And I believe in the necessity of government to a degree in our lives, obviously. So that just sounds to me like being Canadian and being rational. <laughs> I will thank you for saying that, I would have thought that. But now the term, uh, if you say you're center right, or uh, uh, you know, you're pretty well gonna be excoriated, um, at least in, in the public arena. Uh, the left tends to want more government in, in their lives, more, mm -hmm. more government control. Mm -hmm. And that's why they don't push back on a number of things that the right would push back on. So yes, we need regulations. Yes, we need taxation. Mm -hmm. Obviously we need these, these type of things to run governments. But when you say you're from the right, you're, you're, you're highlighting 
your importance, the sense of importance you have on individual human beings. Um, the more you get to the left, of course, then you get, you get to Napoleon or you get to, let's say, present day leaders who say, I'm the state. You know, l'état c'est moi, I'm the one. And uh, again, I don't want to pick on Boral Napoleon, but you know, he, it, it's been noted of him. First, he had to destroy personal liberties. Then he exhausted the resources of his country. So the first step is, is destroying those uh, liberties. So if you're at the place now where you are afraid to say, yeah, I'm to the right of the spectrum, uh, then your voice is going to be diminished. You're only going to hear from so-called the left. That'll become the prevailing narrative. And people who are in what I would call the mushy middle just go, well, that's the only view we hear. So it must be the quote, right view, even though it's the left perspective. One of my, one of the things I'm working through trying to understand this is I think my perception of undemocratic regimes of the past. So whether we're talking about a dictatorship or uh, you know, an abuse of monarchy or, or any kind of sort of dominating system is that of course the subjects would have desired freedom but had it limited. Of course there would be a tension between the subjects wanting freedom and their leader not wanting freedom. But the thing that I think has become clear over the last couple of years is we don't have a majority of people in Canada who desire to live free individual lives and just feel those feel that constrained at different points. We have people whose spirit for freedom is it's it's growing weak. It's growing tiresome. It feels selfish. You're accused of being selfish, and and I'm very interested in whether or not I mean has freedom ever been Canadian? Is that part of our identity? Is it an American value that somehow got incorporated into our constitution, <laughs> you know? Um, what is it, I guess my question is, what is it to be Canadian? And are we right to think that freedom is an essential component of that identity? Oh, I believe, I believe we are. And I appreciate you raising that because I mean, even the mottos of some of our provinces, you know, uh, strong and free, Right. Uh, freedom being a core value. Often we hear Sir Wilfrid uh, Laurier talking about freedom. So that has been, it's not as pronounced in the US because as, as your viewers would know, when the colonists so-called made the decision that they were going to rebel against the king because they were being grossly taxed, overly regulated, freedom of speech was gone. And they said, you know, we've appealed, it's not worked. So now we're gonna fight. Well, a, a number of those columnists still had allegiance to the king and said, no, we're out of here and we're moving north to this place, these couple of provinces called Canada, mm. because they, you know, they still respected the king, they respected the monarchy, they didn't mind so much paying the big taxes, and they didn't want to fight, they still wanted freedom, but now it was a hybrid type of freedom. Um, when I go back generationally, my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather were from the... Um, you know, the, the Eastern seaboard. And, and my mother's side of the family were among what we call, so, so those people who didn't want to fight the king, they wanted to be loyal to the empire, they were the United Empire loyalists. So my mother's side of the family said, no, we're out of here. And they moved left. They like, as I would say to her, uh, you know, you, your folks, your side love paying taxes and love taking orders. But, um, <laughs> but so I'm a bit, when I come to tax policy and things like that, I, you know, I'm a bit schizophrenic, I guess, because I've got this mm -hmm. dual stream in my DNA. 
but we Canadians were still very much freedom oriented, but um, in a little more of a subjective, and I use that subjecting themselves still to the monarchy and thinking we could achieve responsible government by moving along incrementally, which largely we did. And, uh, you know, credit, credit to the Canadian model. But freedom, I mean, there was no issue. First World War, you know, calling on all those soldiers to rise to the occasion. Our, our, our troops were known at Dieppe and Vimy Ridge and Second World War. Um, you know, we respond, we respond significantly. But there is an effort and there has been in the last, again, maybe it's 30, 40 years to diminish that, to diminish that importance of individual freedom and to, to somehow incorporate a new view of Canada, which is relatively new, that we actually all want to be socialists. Well, I think that is increasing. The more you give money to people and they don't have to work, uh, the more they're going to tend to want to con continue to see that. You know, you give a grant and then try and take that away. That's, that, that just doesn't happen in politics. So unfortunately, by this ongoing buyout of Canadians, and that would include buying out businesses, um, people are literally being bought out to uh, forego some of what used to be individual freedom and just say, you know what, as long as I'm getting my payments and as long as I got a roof over my head and as long as I got my cell phone and the internet, yeah, I'm basically good. I, I feared that's where we're drifting. You are quite a student of history. And I bring that up because it seems to me that we don't hear about history very much anymore. If anything, history is a threat. You mentioned the common response to um, invoking references to the, to the Holocaust or any other um, atrocities of the past. And that feeling like a threat or it's inappropriate or it's a poor argument from analogy or, or whatever it is. Or it, or it diminishes the experience of the people who, who went through those things. Um, you know, so someone who taught in university for a long time and now following what's driving much of this narrative, the idea that you follow the science to the exclusion of everything else. But science without an understanding of humanity, without understanding of history, without empathy, without curiosity, without all of these things that we learn from the models of the past, right? And, and the past teaches us not just maybe how to live better, but what happens when we err in certain ways, right? What happens when we let our weaknesses go unchecked? What happens when we um, elect the wrong kind of leader, the wrong kind of government? Do you think, and I, I don't remember in recent history when I have heard a politician refer to or make any kind of historical reference to Canadian politicians mm -hmm. of the past or anything else. Do you think it's therefore not a coincidence that we've gotten here because we have leaders who see themselves, I guess, subconsciously or consciously as disjointed from the past or as better than the past, as above the past, as not needing to make reference. And, and, and then a bigger question is, that's a failing of our, our, our school system too, do, do you think? Huge, huge. Uh, boy, you've really zeroed in and, and the education system, that's where we have really, uh, we've really lost the battle. Um, up until I was cancelled, um, I had a regular gig at one of, uh, well, a couple of Canada's universities. I won't mention either of them because I don't want them to get in trouble now. Um, <laughs> but um, so I, I would start the discussion, uh, this one course, it was a credit course, uh, and it was for postgrad students. So they had to show up, so I had a captive audience. And uh, it was usually a, a two-day uh, course. 
And uh, so I was actually alarmed, uh, Julie, I can tell you, because I one day I was just making a, a side reference to uh, the Magna Carta. And uh, I, I saw this sort of blank look among all these students. And these are smart, you know, mm-hmm. articulate students. They're in their mid-20s. They're passionate about what they believe. I had to I had to take about an hour out of the class and explain some of these basic things uh, about where the Magna Carta came from and where some of our basic rights to this day, habeas corpus, you know. And, you know, I would say, what's this got to do with a corpse, you know? Um, so you're right, it, the uh, education system has been, and again, among those who design the courses, deliberately, and I say this deliberately delinquent in reminding people about past historical examples that lead to tragedy. When I talk to sometimes uh, friends of my grandkids, I won't say my grandkids, and my grandkids span all ages, and we've, the odd time, you know, I mentioned, for instance, say the Holocaust, they, they're sort of, what, what was that? And they go, well, you, you know what the Holocaust is, right? Mm, not really. These are, these are kids in their teens. And huh. I, get, I get alarmed at that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I feel very honored that just a couple of years ago, I was honored by B'nai B'rith for my stand for Israel and for um, some of the things that are going on and how we should be supporting them. And yet sometimes when I talk about these things, I, I just get blank stares. They, they literally are not informed and not just the event, the, the, the horrific events of themselves, but what led up to them that are common in all societies that are eventually taken over by rabid dictators. There's a series of things that has to happen first and building fear about speaking out is definitely one of the building blocks that has to take place before you can oversee something as horrific uh, as the destruction of, of a nation or a destruction of an entire group of people. One question I think that's on a lot of people's minds right now is whether we're at the end of something or just at the beginning of something. Are we, at, you know, is this after a storm or the beginning of a superstorm, or are we having a pause between two storms? And, and I think you're quite right. But you know, teaching that, understanding the precursors to losses of freedom in the past, to t- totalitarian control, whatever we want to call it, understanding those precursors, that takes a lot of nuance, I think, and because you have to read beyond the event itself. Right. right? You're right. In what led up to the Holocaust? You there are lots of books on the Holocaust or lots of books on Nazism, but understanding what was going on in the culture in the 20s in Europe. Right, exactly, yeah. Right, that's a difficult thing that I think not a lot probably of historians even or or teachers of history are well-versed to do, but that doesn't mean we should shy away from the work of that. But it's maybe not surprising that so many of us are not in tune to the similarities between what's going on now and what what has happened in the past, right? Yeah, I agree. Um, And I think, and I don't want to sound like I'm, blaming all the ills on media, though I am. <laughs> um, but you mentioned the 20s and the 30s, you know, when the so-called Soviet experiment was being unrolled and uh, marxist leninist as it was and being enforced by physical force. Now we've got cultural Marxism, which is actually just as terrifying. But uh, it could only have happened by people getting to the place where they're completely terrified of speaking up and, and they were just eliminated. Um, but you know, the media and the philosophers of the day, and, I, and you would be aware of this as a philosopher, of course, you know, Birch and Russell and others who would actually go, they actually went to the Soviet Union. They wanted to see if it worked and they came back telling the lie. 
they said, we have seen the future and it works. And so the entire Western population, you know, Canada, US, Europe, we're going, well, maybe, yeah, it's not great, but maybe it's not so bad. No, it's horrific. It is evil. And that evil was covered up to a large degree and it still is by some of the so-called, um, you know, some of the icons of culture by not exposing it. Mm. I was in, and it's not just Soviet Union, um, just a couple of years ago, uh, I was in Cuba. I was there with a group that was uh, helping small uh, individual farms, helping farmers get started, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, seed production and raising chickens and things like that. Cuba is a disaster when it comes to standard of living, healthcare, um, empty shelves everywhere. Once, once you get out of Havana, which is bad enough as it is, it's terrible. The Cuban people, uh, the ones we met, are wonderful. But you talk about living in fear and not being and being afraid to speak up. But again, the media, anytime Canadian journalists go to uh, Cuba, they talk about, oh, isn't it quaint? They love the old cars. They love driving around in the old 56 Chevys. Isn't that quaint? That's not quaint. They've been denied technology. They're not allowed to get ahead by their own ingenuity. They're allowed to keep, the, or they figure out ways to keep these old cars coming. Right. So the failure of media to be honest about what some of these socialist regimes have wrought has been one of the significant factors in our, in our own populations being totally misled by these, by you know, the swan song of socialism, for instance, and, and then eventually the power that it takes to force that on people through fear. I have no no doubt about you, no doubt about it that you're right that the media has fueled and created this machine this fear generating machine no no challenge to that view but I do wonder you know what is it that makes that possible surely people the populace has to be in a place where they're vulnerable to that mm. level of hysteria and I wonder a lot lately about, you know, in philosophy, in, in academia, we talk about postmodernism, kind of this, this free fall after this claim that, you know, nothing has meaning, everything we believed in for the right. longest time is just empty. And I think that that's trickled down culturally. I mean, far fewer people now, and I don't want to pin all of this on religion, but, uh, or even Christianity or Judaism per se, but I think far fewer people now than ever before self-identify as being religious. Right. And religion is a big source of meaning, right? Whether it's true or false, whether you, um, you, you know, regardless of, of the particulars of your religion, it gives you purpose and meaning. You live life for a reason. You do, you know, you, you structure your lives, your life in certain, for certain reasons. Do you think that we, we sort of have a crisis of meaning? And this is maybe not unique to, to Canada. I mean, this is, you know, quite possibly a global phenomenon, but I mean, is it is it a loss of religion? Is it a loss of meaning more generally in our lives? And that what we're doing is trying to, you know, we're in this terrible state of fear in part because we lack meaning, but because we're in a terrible state of fear, we want to feel better. So we right. want we want connections with other people and those connections we think will be meaningful. So we submit to this um, collectivist group idea and do whatever mm. the group says and sacrifice ourselves for the group without realizing that, it's not really the, the, the trade-off or the, the payoff is not the meaning we thought we were going to get. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, a great insight there. And um, yeah, religion in and of itself, belief in a God does have the transcending effect 
of causing people to think there's maybe some rights and some wrongs. There's mm-hmm. maybe there's maybe some evil and some good. Yes, it's very handy, sickly. <laughs> right. Well, it can be handy, so it can be utilitarian. Um, you know, I had a grandmother say, God will get you. You know, well, that's not a proper expression. I don't think of, of who God is, but it has a utilitarian value. Yeah. Um, but even, you know, um, even Machiavelli in his, in his um, advice to the prince said, basically said, listen, even if you're not religious, you, you got to look religious for the people. You, you got to look religious. Yeah. Uh, but there was some profound truth in that because, you know, someone like myself, uh, you know, for a lot of my younger life, I didn't believe that there could be a possibility of a divine being. Of course, I do believe that now. That has a moderating effect on individual behavior, but it has a moderating effect mm-hmm on individual behavior that'll spread out to the family that spreads out to the community. And so there is this moderating effect. And when you then dispense with that, and whether you're talking about, um, you know, as, as we recently had a federal cabinet minister called the Abrahamic beliefs, which apparently are not going to be allowed anymore to be expressed in our armed forces. Um, once you take that away, you do have a much more of a might is right. Um, I mean, religion was and still is in many cases the, the basis for the rule of law, for instance. The fact, just the notion there could be a law that is actually above you, that is beyond you, and that will regulate our social behavior. Mm-hmm. When that gets diminished, um, you really do have chaos begins to ensue, and then it's just the most powerful person or group that will control everybody else. And I don't say that just to say, we should keep religion because it's got great utilitarian value. Mm-hmm. I, I say it because I believe it's true, but it, it is also true that when you depart from, the, from any sense there could be some absolute right and wrongs, um, you start to really open yourself up to what eventually is gonna be the strongest, the strongest person or group will be the one that rules and it's no longer tolerance it's no longer toleration it's Mm. domination that's that's a haunting phrase isn't it the the death of religion it creates a vacuum doesn't it and something has to fill that and maybe the most maybe this has always been true i mean maybe societies that have lost religion have become less less religious always fill it with a kind of group control a kind of a scrambling for domination. Maybe, maybe that's always been the case. Um, one, one thing I want to ask you about is our separatist tendencies. You know, we've mm. been uh, Quebec and the rest of Canada. There's been that for a long time. But it seems like more and more now we're hearing about East and West. And, uh, you know, I'm um, being annoyed with him, though many of us were. Jason Kenney from the West probably should have stood up for the West much sooner than he did, because there's definitely a palpable freedom movement there that was not represented politically, I think, from, or mm-hmm. that's how it looks from the East anyway. Do you think that we, this kind of separatist tendency is inescapable for Canadians? Will we either separate somehow in the future or will we just have this constant desire to do so. I mean, I guess what that is, is a failure to be able to get along, isn't it, fundamentally? Or a failure to see ourselves as one thing. Well, you're right. Um, and unfortunately, this the East-West divide is accentuated by irresponsible 
especially federal leadership. Uh, so when you have, when the list of grievances grows in a region, then that can be whipped up into separatist uh, tendency. Mm. I really believe that even in Alberta, which is probably a leader in this, I think, uh, Julie, if it came right down to it, I don't think you would get 50% of the vote. I don't even think it would, you know, 50% plus one has happened in Quebec. Um, I, I think you'd get 30, I think you'd get in the 30s. And if the, if the tensions continue to mount, it could get higher. The answer is to allow for the regions to truly stand up for themselves mm -hmm. and to say, look, we're different. And so we want some different social policy at the federal level. We want some different economic policy. We still want to get along uh, in this family called Canada. But if um, at the federal level, as is happening right now, if the liberals continue to want to squash and crush some of the unique differences with our regions, mm -hmm. they are only going to whip up this sentiment. And when I was uh, Minister of Finance, for instance, we'd have provincial finance minister meetings. I would always ally with the, whoever the Quebec Minister of Finance was, Bernard Landry at the time, because those guys in Quebec and women, they understood this area of autonomy. Mm -hmm. And yes, they played both sides of the fence. They knew how to get the best out of uh, Canada, but also maintain their own autonomy. So that's really the answer is to, um, and, and yeah, I think uh, Jason Kenney got you know, somewhat overwhelmed by events with COVID and everything else. Mm -hmm. But if federal leaders don't recognize that the true health of a country comes with allowing differences to flourish, then this sentiment is going to continue to rise. It's going to be very harmful, very counterproductive. So many of the people, maybe all of the people I've talked to who have fled Canada recently to move to the States, give the same answer to explain why they're doing it. And they say, because the particular American states have more autonomy than the, than the provinces in Canada do. And so even though they, they may not agree with the, with the president, with the federal government in the states, they feel that if they go to a particular state, there's more autonomy. Do you think we need to move towards that model in Canada more such that Alberta can have more autonomy from the federal government or Ontario can have more autonomy from the federal government. And then would we need a change in the, in the voting system to make that possible? I do. I think that's a uh, really key to the answer. And unfortunately, I mean, Canada was designed that way. If you remember, uh, John A. Macdonald wanted to get more provinces involved in this thing called mm. Canada. And so he had to make big promises to, to provinces. He says, look, if you come in, we're going to let you do this. We're going to let you do that. I'll build a railway to, you know, so everybody can link up together. Um, clearly in the U.S., being, being a, a group of United States, that is far more evident. I was down in uh, Florida in the fall for a while. And I'll tell you, the people who are streaming into Florida from states that, are, that have a different political view. And I think that's beautiful. The whole thing should be come down to choice. In Florida, I remember getting there and people would say to me, hey, isn't it great? COVID's over. And I went, um, okay. Not where I come from. <laughs> yeah, okay, COVID's over. You know who our premier is? <laughs> Right. Yeah. But you look at the way, for instance, uh, there's a number of governors doing this, but Governor DeSantis seems to be getting quite a bit of attention. Mm -hmm. uh, the way he stands up to certain federal policies. And he said, hey, here in Florida, we're doing it this way. So Canada was denied that was designed that way. And uh, I remind people, we are a con federation. We are not a fed. We weren't designed as a fed. We're a con federation. And we were, you know, we were originally designed to be able to not just allow but to celebrate these differences. But again, over the last, you pick the number of years, 
it has to, it's this crushing, suffocating effect that comes from the center, that comes from Ottawa, saying no. Now they've only allowed, they've allowed significant autonomy in Quebec as they should. Mm -hmm. But for instance, on, on any variety of policy, provinces need to be allowed to express their differences. If you don't, the divide is going to get greater. I still don't think, and I, I think this is what the feds often realize. I think at the end of the day, they know, you know what, at the end of the day, those Albertans, 51% of them aren't going to vote to leave. So let's just keep crushing the dissidents there. It's a horrible approach to governing and it's, it, it, it should simply stop and people should truly be respected for their different views individually, community-wise and provincially. You know, the precise moment I realized that the fabric of Canada was changing was during the, on the campaign trail, when Trudeau with such hatred, red face, pulsing veins said, don't think you're getting on a plane next to a vaccinated person. Exactly. Do you know what I thought in that moment? I thought, well, he just lost the election. Canadians aren't going to stand for that. I think that won him the election because mm -hmm. mm. whether or not he's driving it or reflecting it, that kind of hatred and division is palpable, isn't it, today? And that's really, what we need to address, right? Where that coming really from? Is. Sorry, it go really ahead. Is. No, no, it really is. It's, it's thriving uh, at a level that's, very concerning. And yes, you can see, you know, as he's calling people haters, you can see the hatred and, and his minister, just one of his ministers just said last week, the whole thing about keeping unvaccinated people off planes was to force them to get vaccinated, had nothing to do with the science. And you're right, I was shocked actually as you are, I thought, well, that'll expose, you know, the, just that hateful look. No, his campaign of fear was successful enough that now people, including in my own family, said, you're trying to kill me. You are actually trying to kill me. Complete, complete repudiation of the science on the issue. Um, but it's, it's that, it's, it's motivating people through fear. I mean, look, just in the last two days, you've had uh, one study showing uh, the, the 50, I think I said a 54% increase uh, among 17 to 21 year olds in uh, different uh, problems with, with, with the heart related to the vaccine. And then yesterday, one of the key players at the FDA, this isn't an anti-vax person, said, you know what, it's true. Among five to 11-year-olds, yes, there's been a five-fold increase in heart problems for those who get vaccinated. But, you know, they actually kind of said this five-fold really is not that big a deal. Um, excuse me, I, I was forced to learn a bit of math when I was finance minister. I'm still not great <laughs> at it. But five-fold is, <laughs> five is 500%. And, you know, I've got grandkids in that age range, and I don't tell my kids and beautiful daughters-in-law what to do, but I do say, please consider this. Your, your kids, 5 to 11, they have more risk of dying driving to school than they do of dying from contracting COVID at school. But you drive them every day, and the risk of them getting the vax uh, the risk of heart problems among that age group has gone up in the last few years, 500%. And I just say, please, just consider this. Please consider it. Well, these so, are words we don't hear anymore. Please think about this. Please consider this. I mean, this is not really right. welcome 
advice, I think, in the mind, we're told not to think about things, not to consider things. And I'm wondering where, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the worst parts of humanity over the last while. We've talked about hatred and division and uh, Napoleon and the Holocaust. And where, you know, I mean, I'm asking you to sort of put on, put look in your crystal ball, but where do you think we're going to be next year or mm. a decade from now when you're, when you're, eight-year-old grandchild is going off to university or at that age, what do you think mm. Canada will look like? Well, when you start talking about grandkids, you're, you're getting to the, you know, the core of my heart here. And I've always been an optimist at heart, but I, I wanna tell you that in different presentations I've made in the last couple of years, I'm losing the optimism in terms of our hope of a truly freewheeling, prosperous society. And, um, you know, they say the difference between an optimist and a pessimist is that the pessimist usually has more information. <laughs> so um, there's, there's reasons for- well, It's not pessimism, it's realism then. <laughs> exactly right. So for Canada, I'm entirely pessimistic. No, leaning much more to pessimism. Yes, you mentioned business people. The federal government is 100% in denial over the number of, and I'm not talking about big corporate entities. I'm talking about family businesses, small businesses that are move, right now moving and have already moved out of the country. When assets, financial assets leave a country, that country becomes increasingly impoverished. We are on the road to Venezuela in Canada. I was just talking with a, a business couple and their accountant is from Venezuela. And she has said to them a number of times just recently, do Canadians not see where their country is headed with this government that just, number one, promises them everything and, and is spending without limits and also building fear at the same time? And she said, can Canadians not see this? I talked to another family that moved, took their entire business because now we can be very fluid in terms of where our businesses are. Um, I can do my business anywhere in the world. And this family had moved to Croatia. And they say, we, we love it here. They, they haven't, their, their school system is much better. They haven't gone woke crazy. People are allowed to celebrate their differences, but we don't dominate and try and ram our differences into their lifestyle. It's a much, much more uh, respectful society. And once you're in Croatia and work towards getting a passport after a few years, you know, you've got your ticket to the entire EU. Similar people are saying that people whose families came from, let's say, Eastern Europe in the 20s and 30s and went where there was still freedom in South America and Central America. Now their kids have become successful and are, are losing their savings and losing the ability to be entrepreneurial. They're restructuring and they're finding themselves in Central America. They're finding great spots of freedom in uh, South America. And the federal government is, they're, not, they're in denial. They know it's happening, but they don't want to admit it's happening they actually like, I guess, they like the prospect of us becoming impoverished Venezuela, because when you're impoverished as a people, you are completely dominated by the governing forces. And uh, economics is not as far removed from morality and relationships and non-financial things as we might think, because when you control someone's ability to earn and keep their money, you control much of their power in the world and the opportunities that you have in life. And so we might think of these things as separate as belonging to different portfolios in the government, for example, but in actual fact, 
economic decisions, what we do with our money, what our government does with our money, have a very big impact and trickle down into all facets of our lives. And maybe most significantly, I think impact people's sort of daily mental health, right? If we're worried, I spoke to someone last night who said, I, I, I'm priced out of the housing market in Toronto and I don't see myself ever getting in. Well, that's not just about having a financial asset, right? That's also about right. having a home, having stability, having right. something you can work on that's yours that you take pride in. And so I think it isn't surprising that, as you mentioned, people from Venezuela looking at us saying, don't you see what you're doing to yourselves, not just economically, but yourselves, generally speaking. What do you think people, I mean, these are big, big issues, big topics right. we're talking about today. They're grand, they're global, many of them. What do you think people can do? You know, I'm going to get up on a Wednesday morning. I need to make some decisions about my life. I need to make decisions about, you know, my job and my bank account and my relationships with my friends and my children. And uh, what, what do people do on the micro scale now to start mm moving out of this towards something more hopeful? Well, the number of people that want to do that, or let's say that are motivated to do that, are because that, that, that large number is diminishing. And it's because the government is continuing to move in and literally buying people um, at, at all levels, paying them, making the payments. And so, so people start to give up. There's a level at which you me, others, there's a level at which we will capitulate and say to the government, yeah, okay, I'm just gonna let you run it and uh, do what you want. I just want you know, a few of the creature comforts and I wanna be warm in the winter and have my house and have the internet, uh, have my rented house. Um, <laughs> so so for, you know, for many people, and I say this in a heartbroken way, many people who are so-called homeless living on the streets, that level of government support, which they will basically say, yeah, I'm giving up, uh, it, it's comparatively low. You know, if they get a couple thousand a month, as many of them do, they're willing to say, you know what, life is tough and I'm willing to settle for this. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm out here in BC right now and I see them all and, you know, so many of them in their tents down by the water. And um, there's some tragic, tragic stories there, but they're willing to set to, to basically capitulate for 2000. Um, I wouldn't capitulate for 2000, but if the government said to me, you know what, uh, Stock, you've been working hard all your life. How about for 2 million a year, you just sort of step out, do what you like, but don't get involved anymore. Yeah, they, I hate to say it, they might get me at 2 million. So <laughs> what about 100,000? There's a lot of people who will cop out at 100,000, some at 50,000. And so as the government continues to subsidize you as an individual or businesses individually, the will to stand up and make our own way begins to diminish it. We come, become much more malleable as a population. And um, in the words, the famous words of Klaus Schwab over at the uh, World Economic Forum, and I'm not a conspirator on that, by the way, the World Economic Forum, they're wide open. They, are, <laughs> they actually do believe that the world will be better when we just control it with a few elite. And the rest of us poor bumbling souls, they're going to take care of us. They actually do believe that. So there's nothing hidden or conspiratorial about it. And in his own words, he said, as he said, when he's talking about Canada, he said, listen, you're going to get to the place where you will own nothing, you will rent, and you will be happy. And I think there's a prophetic uh, impulse in what he said, whether he intended it to be that way. 
but he was appealing. That's appealing to the dark side of human nature, which we all have. There is a point which we're willing to shrug and say, you know what? It means I could lose my reputation and my livelihood. I'm just shutting up. Or it means I could, I should, uh, you know, I should pursue these various freedoms and highlight them and speak about them. No, you know, I'm just going to lose everything. So I'm just going to be quiet. So that's why I'm somewhat pessimistic, at least in Canada, not giving up, but more and more of our population is saying, you know, I'm good with that. Just cover up, cover everything for me. And I rent and uh, you know what, I'll be happy. I'm very concerned about the growth of those numbers in Canada. It's a testament to the strain of modern life though, isn't it? If we're that willing to give up our integrity, our identity, everything for the sake of money and security, doesn't that say something about how strained and worried we are and struggling and, you know, paddling quickly underwater in order to keep all the, you know, all the ducks in the row, mixing metaphors of various kinds there, I think. But, um, you know, I think we're probably back to where we were earlier in the conversation about meaning. Uh, if you're willing to trade off, sell off yourself for money, what have you got left? You might not have, you know, you might be able to, as you say, cover your rent, buy food, but for what purpose? To what mm -hmm. end? For what yeah. relationships? And human beings are, you know, I think back to the philosophers I love, Plato and Aristotle, the ancients, 2,000 years plus. I think we've understood that flourishing and happiness comes from seeing the value of our agency in the world. Mm. We're not perfect all the time. We don't always get it right. We misstep, right. but we can see that we have an effect on the world. And then mm. the sense of response that feeds back into our sense of responsibility. And hopefully we get up the next day and say, I'm gonna try and do that a little bit better today. You mm. take pride in that growth, right? Mm. And I think you're, I think I'm, I'm quite compelled by your thesis that the um, World Economic Forum is not conspiratorial because it sounds yeah. very good. We'll take care of you and you will be happy. I don't know if that claim you will be happy is, is descriptive or instructive. I don't know if he means, I think by that you'll be happy or you better be happy because we've given you all of this. I don't know, maybe it's a bit of both, but that's a world yeah. in which we've lost meaning. And who are we as humans if we don't have meaning in our lives? Well, you've picked up on the nuance. You will be happy. <laughs> you know um, on pain of not being happy <laughs> exactly exactly right and um yeah that's the that's the very uh, disconcerting thing uh i mean you've you, you've written some you've done some great publishing on your studies on aristotle and he talked about happiness in the true meaning of the word and it was a happiness that was not derived by caving into um you know imperial forces though those our reputation the desire our reputation yeah so it still comes, it comes back to fear. Um, I, I, you know, you talk about people in fear. So um, I've had wonderful opportunity and I'm very thankful for it over the years in government and then the private se sector to meet with so many boards uh, of organizations, both in the private sector and the philanthropic sector. Uh, you know, people who've worked hard, earned their way onto these board positions and uh, CEOs of large company, I can tell you, and obviously I would never name names, at the board level, large corporate boards and the CEO level, you might be surprised, I don't know if you would be, uh, at the level of fear there, where they've said, yeah. you know what, I, I, I don't believe the world is going to end because of global warming, uh, you know, at uh, 
nine o'clock on July 1st, 9.30 in Newfoundland. I don't believe it's gonna end then. But if I say I don't believe it, man, it's gonna cost us contracts. We're gonna lose business. They're gonna say I'm, uh, I'm some kind of a denier. So even at, you know, with intelligent, highly educated, successful people, this fear factor, they know better. They know there's, a, just look at global warming itself, they know there's an appropriate way to look at how best to uh, deal with emission controls and things like that, but shutting down our entire energy sector, they know that's wrong. They know it's gonna hurt the environment in the long run because we can't get China then off of its coal. We can't get Ukraine off of, and Europe off of its dependence. They know it's wrong. I've talked to them for years. They, I'd say, gentlemen and women, you've got to speak up. People listen to you. No, no, we're bidding on a big contract right now. We will lose that contract if we don't completely bow down to the, not the fact that global warming isn't something that should be looked at, it should, but if we're not declaring this is pretty well a state of emergency and telling uh, you know, our kids and grandkids that it's pretty well over unless we shut down anything to do with oil and gas, then I'm gonna lose my contract, my job and my position. That's huge in the, in the private sector. It's huge in the healthcare sector. So many doctors have talked to too, who, who I know personally, good friends. And I said, you know, this isn't true. You gotta speak up. And they, they go, you're asking me to speak up. And they'll point to people, other doctors who've been punted out of the system, mm -hmm. sometimes pointing to people like yourself. If I'm talking to my friends in academia, they say, no, it's not worth it. I'm gonna be thrown under the bus. I'll lose my home. Not gonna be able to send my kids to universities. No, I'm not speaking up. If people are so dumb that they wanna believe the extremists, that's up to them, but I'm not speaking up. The fear factor, again, it comes back to that. It's huge, even in that highly educated level of society. Well, I wanna take on those academics who are afraid and say it's not worth it. And I can say that being on the other side of being thrown under the bus, it is totally worth it. I wouldn't have had the chance to talk to you today and have this, I think, fascinating conversation if I hadn't been shunned out of those precious ivory towers that they're afraid to step on the other side of. I think they're wrong about that. And I, for one, am committed to being relentless on this point. If we concede, if we give up the things that make us human, there's no point to living. We've right. lost everything. Right. And I think you're relentless on that point too. And I think that we need to keep going. And I think we need to keep speaking because if we lose, not just our right to speak, but our interest in doing it, our ability to do it effectively, compassionately, empathetically, then there, there, there's no space for freedom to thrive anymore. And um, you, you have such spirit on these points. And I just can't thank you enough for joining us today. And please stay relentless. <laughs> well, listen, uh, we're closing out. And so if I can just say, uh, if I'm going to be staying relentless and if I still have sparks of optimism, it is because of people like you. And I'm not, not saying this you know, in a gratuitous kind of way. I think on the cover of your book, uh, somebody wrote that you, are uh, uh, you are a light in an encircle and circling uh, circle? Room, I think. <laughs> yeah. Where's that? And so you are. Uh, people will say, "I'll be having conversations." Say, "Hey, wasn't there? Isn't there some woman, you a professor or something?" And she got punted just because she disagreed on some of the health stuff. I said, "Yeah, that's really happening, and you need to look at what she's saying." So thank you for what you're saying. Thank you for being willing to give up your entire career. And uh, thank you for being one of those points of light, keeping us out of darkness.
Thank you for today and for leading our country and for staying committed to it. It's, it's, it's unspeakable what that means. Thank you. Thank you, Bruno.